So let's take a moment to remember that we are always in the presence of the holy beings. We can imagine them in front of us. And we are also always surrounded by all sentient beings on whom we depend for everything. So now come back to your breath. Let the mind settle down. Last week, Venerable Sumpton reminded us that Venerable Chodron said that it's important that every time we sit down to study or meditate on this text, that we focus on the disadvantages of the self-centered thought. So I've been preparing for this review, and until I think maybe yesterday, this reminder crossed my mind. <laughs> I thought, oh, I need to do this. <laughs> and so I thought it would be a good time now to recall those disadvantages that we all shared last week. So I'll read the ones that we called out, and then you can bring others to mind. So the self-centered thought makes us miserable, makes us feel lonely, gives rise to fear, protectiveness, or hyper-focused on just me. We have indifference, we care less for others, or inconsiderate, selfish, seeing less happiness around us. It makes life boring. It breeds competitiveness. It brings afflictions and negative actions. It closes our mind, makes us narrow-minded breeds depression, and keeps one bumping against others. To really get a sense for how destructive this self-centered thought is in your own experience.
In the Lam Rim, when introducing a topic, often the disadvantages of not cultivating that mindset are discussed, as well as the advantages for cultivating the mindset that we want to develop. And so now that we've looked at some of the disadvantages of self-centeredness, we can turn to looking at the benefits of altruism. And specifically, the most supreme kind of altruism, the mind that's dedicated to attaining full awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings, bodhicitta, And this is actually what Shantideva spends the whole first chapter talking about are the benefits of bodhicitta. So verse 10 of the first chapter reads, For like the supreme substance of the alchemists, it takes our impure flesh and makes of it the body of a Buddha, jewel beyond all price, such as bodhicitta, let us grasp it firmly. So in the commentary of the Nectar of Manjushri's speech, it says, By means of the supreme substance, the elixir of the alchemists, the gold-producing mercury, a single ounce of iron may be transmuted into a thousand ounces of pure gold. In the same way, if with bodhicitta one lays hold of this lowly human body, composed of numerous impure substances, and if, instead of rejecting it, as the Srivakas do, one adopts it throughout the course of many lifetimes in order to secure the welfare of others, this human body will itself become the body of a Buddha. It becomes something endowed with unimaginable qualities of excellence, a priceless, wish-fulfilling jewel that protects from the drawbacks of samsara and nirvana and grants the supreme protection, perfection of the twofold aim. Since it is able to effect such extraordinary transformation, the extraordinary elixir of bodhicitta is something to be tightly grasped, never to be relinquished, we should therefore pledge ourselves to take hold of it, as Shantideva says. So Venerable Chodron, when she was commenting on this verse, said that it's not that our flesh and bone body is the substantial cause of the body of a Buddha, but it is with this body that we practice the path 
And it is by purifying our mind and practicing on the basis of this body that we become a Buddha. So let's use this session of reviewing and sharing to move closer to our goal of full awakening and transform this body into a very beneficial vehicle, a wish-fulfilling body for the benefit of all beings. So I want to um, preface this review session um, by saying that when I found out we were going to be meditating on the four establishments this winter, I knew I wanted to focus on the body. And I thought, oh, Shantideva has verses on the body. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll look there and see um, you know, what he says, what the various perspectives are on this body. And I looked up on the digital version, I found over 80 instances of body in this text. He extensively talks about giving up attachment to this body. And so um, when I was asked if I was interested in leading a review, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll share that. Not all 80 verses, <laughs> promise. Um, but then when um, Venerable Sompton gave the review last week, um, she ended on, um, on a verse right before two verses in the chapter on patience about the body. And so I thought to start there and then work, work our way into looking at these other perspectives. And so we'll see how far we get. <laughs> I've never done this before, so I don't know. Um, yeah, how long it will be, but it will be fun. <laughs> as long as we get our self-centered thought out of the way. So um, I'll be using um, this translation, The Way of the Bodhisattva, translated by the uh, um, Padmakara Translation Group, as well as The Nectar of Manjushri's Speech by Kunzung Peldin, um, and also, of course, Venable Chodron for this review. So, um, the next verse in um, this chapter that we've been reviewing is verse 43. And here, Shantideva gives us some antidotes to anger, which our self-centered thought will not like to hear. Um, and he's pointing this out to us, exactly what we don't want to hear. So it says, their weapons and my body, both are causes of my torment. They their weapons, I my body brandished. Who then is more worthy of my rage? Okay, so we have somebody coming at us with a weapon or something, their hand, and we have our body. It takes two to make that contact. So Venerable says, because if people are going to harm my body, it's not just the people or their weapons, but they couldn't harm my body if I didn't have a body. Whose responsibility is it that I have a body that experiences pain? 
how did I get a body made of flesh and bones that experiences pain? And then she lists all these things that didn't come from. So maybe you could guess some of these things. Where didn't the body come from that we often think that it came from? The stork. The stork. Yeah, she said the stork. <laughs> A creator God. Yep. This, this idea of the primal substance. It came from nowhere. It, it was magic. It was a miracle. I was often called a miracle baby. <laughs> but it was not a miracle. <laughs> Um, it arose due to causes and conditions. And what are those causes of conditions? What are the characteristics of those? So we just looked at five um, in Geshe Tapke's teachings. So one is what Gyatso said, not a divine creator's thoughts. Any others? Not from one, so there are multiple causes. Concordant. They're impermanent. They're existent and they're selfless. So it's due to because of karma and afflictions that we have this body. And so specifically, the 12 links describes this process. So where did birth come from? Birth came from death. What happens just before birth in the 12 links? Yeah, renewed existence, so the ripening of a, um, a karmic seed. And then before that, clinging. And before that, before that, <laughs> contact. Six and sources, name and form, consciousness, formative action, and ignorance. So it all comes back to ignorance. So of course, there's the material, substantial causes of the body, which Vinwa Kadro described in her BBC. So the egg and sperm, and then as it develops in the womb. But it's really our karma and afflictions that's to blame. So Venerable says, who, who experienced the afflictions that created the karma that caused me to be born with this kind of samsaric body. It wasn't the person that is now beating the body. It was me. I have some responsibility in this thing. So here she starts talking about how this is a point where a Dharma practitioner or a worldly person, someone not practicing the Dharma would really differ, right? Um, so a worldly person would not question the causes of the body. It's a given, I have a body. <laughs> but as spiritual practitioners and as Dharma practitioners, we really want to develop a more expansive view that sees well Nobody can hurt this body if I didn't have a body. 
and those causes were created by me. So my afflictions and karma are part of the process. If I don't like what I'm experiencing now, then I need to get out of samsara and stop creating the causes for this kind of body. So she says that our minds resist this. <laughs> but she goes on to say that it doesn't mean we're a bad person. And it does not mean that the Buddha or Shantideva are blaming us for having this body. And this was, this was the part that really struck me. She said, but when you have attachment, you are going to experience pain. So do you believe that? No. Why? Would you like to share? Intellectually, yes, I believe that. But deep down, that's not when something, when there's the allure of pleasure, of happiness, um, when there's exaggeration going on there, I want it. And it's hard, the mind that is, that thinks that ordinary pleasure is all that is available to me, can't at that moment see that the grasping is going to um, bring harm. In some situations, it's easier where I've bang, uh, banged my head against the wall so many times it's starting to bruise a little bit, and it's like, okay, I get it. In, in other situations, I'm a bit more thick. Me too. <laughs> Anybody else want to share? No? <laughs> you just agree. <laughs> okay. So we have some yes buts. But she says, the good part about looking at it from this perspective is that we can do something about it. If the pain actually came from another person, then we couldn't do anything about it, right? We could cry, blame, feel sorry for ourselves, but we will never be happy. And she continues, who's got to do the work to rid myself of my attachment. It's me. When you see it correctly, this is very empowering. We can do something to improve our situation. And the Buddha has shown us how to work with and get rid of attachment. There is a method and I need to practice that. So this is what we're doing in winter retreat this year. We're really looking at, um, especially in mindfulness of the body, looking at the antidotes to attachment to the body. We're looking at the opposites of the four distortions. Um, one of the main antidotes to attachment of any kind is to think about impermanence and death. Um, and so death is all over in this book. Uh, death comes up in many, many chapters. Um, chapter two as a motivation for purification. Chapter four as an encouragement to fight afflictions. Chapter five is the cause to give up attachment to the body, which is the cause for not training in the precepts. And the current chapter, chapter six, is a reason to release our anger. 
chapter 7 as the antidote to the laziness of procrastination, and chapter 8 as the counterforce to sensual desire as an obstacle to concentration. So if you need antidotes to attachment, it's right here. So I thought to just pull out one, um, one verse about death related to what we're doing in um, our retreat. And this is one that um, Venerable Children was teaching, I guess, in the fall, um, in chapter 8. So uh, verse 29 of chapter 8 says, And going to the charnel ground, when shall I compare my body with the dry bones there, so soon to fall to nothing all alike? So one of the meditations we're doing is the meditation on the skeleton. Um, and there's a meditation in the um, mindfulness of the body about looking at the various stages of decomposition of the human body. So at the time of the Buddha, this was very easy. There were charnel grounds where bodies would just be laid down to decompose, be eaten by animals. Um, but we don't have those around. Um, actually, Venerable says that she really wishes that people could like go to autopsies and see the human body for what it is, um, but that it's really difficult in this society. Death is totally hidden. Um, and she says, when she was commenting on this verse, what is the difference between this body and a skeleton? Just time. So within 80 years, I would say, I mean, there's some very young men in this audience, but <laughs> I think all of us will be dead unless we're like the, like some people that just lived, what, 118 years? Um, but I'd say most people will be dead by then. We are basically walking skeletons. Our body is set up to become a skeleton. So I wanted to read this passage um, about this verse. And it relates more to a corpse, but I think it's just so really jarring, actually, which is helpful to my mind. I need to be jarred. So it says, When we look at corpses, blue and rotting, we should reflect that they were once owned and cherished, and that, like our own bodies now, they were unable to bear with heat, cold, and disease. We should consider that the corpses are like our own bodies. They are exactly the same kind of thing. And we need to remember that however alive they may seem now, however much we cherish them, and however much they are sensitive to illness, and to the extremes of heat and cold, our bodies are at no time different in nature from the corpses that we see. We should call to mind that our bodies are just the same as the corpses, and we should meditate and become accustomed to this idea. So I don't know about who wants to meditate on a corpse, um, but I was reading recently um, in the path of purification, there's actually quite extensive <laughs> descriptions of these various corpses. 
And there was one uh, part of it said something to the effect of the meditation object, when you first see it, it looks absolutely repulsive and all of this. But as you develop your mind and as you concentrate on it, it becomes like this source of bliss. You know, there. Um, this is a, a text in the Theravadan tradition, and these are different objects that you can actually develop serenity with. And so that these these objects that at first were so foul um, appear to the mind as something very blissful. It's really interesting to think about that. Because what is it doing? It's destroying our attachment to our body, which causes us so much pain. Yeah. So to move on to verse 44. And in this verse, um, we actually get a few more antidotes to attachment to the body. So it reads, This body, running sore in human form, merely touched it cannot stand the pain. I'm the one who grasped it in my blind attachment. Whom should I resent when pain occurs? I wanted to read from this text again. So for chapter, or for verse 44, our bodies which are easy to destroy and difficult to sustain, which are composed of substances like blood and lymph, are like running sores in human form. They are unable to bear the slightest sensation of heat or cold. They crave for food, for clothes, and for the company of a mate. Yet, left to themselves, they are unable to satisfy these needs. It is the mind that must make contact with objects for satisfaction to occur. By itself, the, the body is as though blind. Therefore, since the body is something that we ourselves have assumed, whom should we resent? when pain occurs. So in verse 43, it was specifically talking about when people, other people harm our body. So there's that, right? There's someone else and our body. In this one, I think it could also be uh, talking about pain in general, right? Sickness in general, these things happen. Um, in the Stephen Batchelor translation, which Venerable's using, um, instead of running sore, it says abscess. Um, and of course, in her classic Venerable Children, what? You're calling my body an abscess? <laughs> um, and, but she says, if we leave it alone, if we don't clean it, what happens? It smells and all sorts of gunk comes out of it. And you don't find it beautiful. Um, so it's so popular to think that the body is beautiful. So many of us have been doing the meditation on the 32 parts of the body. Have you found a single part that is attractive? <laughs> Anything online? <laughs> There's no part that's attractive. 
And yet, when we put it all together in the right proportions, right? You put an eye, put skin, put hair, you put enough hair, <laughs> put straight white teeth, young skin, not any kind of skin. It's beautiful. In chapter 5, there's a whole section on giving up attachment to the body. And uh, verse 61 says, Why, O foolish mind, don't you appropriate a clean form carved in wood? How is it fit to guard an unclean engine for the making of impurity? And venerable to this says, Our body is like a machine. The body is a sack of putrid, dirt-filled junk. What would happen if we all came to class without our skin? <laughs> would we say, oh, they're attractive, they're not so attractive? I don't think so. So another um, antidote to attachment to the body that this verse is pointing at, and what Venerable describes is, our body is a setup for suffering. Right? We get sick, we get injured. This body is its setup for pain. So, why are we so attached to it? And why do we think it's the epitome of happiness? Why? Anybody want to answer? Yes. It's all we know. Just even in this one life, we've been so conditioned to um, uh, think about the body in that way that that's where our happiness lies when we're uh, attached to and you know pursue and then get another body, um, you know somebody else uh, to be with us. So mm, a lot of conditioning everywhere. That's what runs the economy, actually. Like all the advertisements, all the media. I've been thinking a lot, I don't have any conclusions about this, but thinking a lot about the karma that we carry, that no matter what birth you take, you have this biological drive to mate. Like, it's just, I mean, it's so deeply in our makeup. <laughs> that when you take a body, that comes with the package. I mean, even how you get the body starts there, right? So it's just, I don't know, it's, it's causing me to think a lot about it, that's all. That reminds me of seeing the turkeys mate. It's amazing. They like puff out their, you know, chests. I mean, they walk around with such arrogance. It's so, it's like, oh, is that what arrogance looks like? <laughs> It's really disturbing. <laughs> I won't go on because I've seen it happen. And yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah, Karen. Just thinking um, why this body. I just don't know what would we do without it. It's. It seems so. There's just nothing. I, yeah, I don't know. I can't imagine what mm. life would be or what our existence would be without the body. Yeah, we wouldn't have the five senses. 
Like what would it be like to be in the formless realm? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, but it's all we know, it's like you said. Yeah. So I, um, a couple years ago, I had read the book um, by Aya Kema, I Give You My Life. It's her autobiography. Um, and then after that, I started kind of looking up some things about her and um, some of her meditations. And she has a meditation on looking at the body. And it specifically, she has a part about looking at our reaction to the possibility that something could happen to our body or something will happen to our body. And I, I just found it so helpful to, because in this meditation, she also goes through the 32 parts in a kind of way, like imagining opening up the body with a zipper and pulling them all out. But a, but a, like a lot of what she does in the meditation is ask us to ask ourselves, what's our reaction to doing this? And I find that so helpful. So I thought um, if we could just, I could just lead a very short meditation um, thinking about how our body is not the epitome of happiness and how it actually, um, yes, yeah, has the possibility of sickness and aging and death. So take a moment to settle into a meditation posture. So think about a part of the body. If you've been doing the 32 parts, you can select one of those. If you're not familiar with that, you can maybe select one of the organs. Now put your attention on the possibility that that part of the body may stop to function properly. Or may stop to function at all. Well, what is your reaction? Is it fear? Dislike? Rejection? Worry? And if your own reaction is one of dislike or fear or rejection, can you see 
that that is embedded in your life because it may happen any time and we know that. And so fear remains with us. Can you see the lack of liberty that is generated by that? The lack of independence. We depend upon all of these parts working properly. And there is no way we can make sure. Recognize the fact that there is no way that we have of making sure that all of these parts keep on being satisfactory. We are always hoping against hope that this will happen. Can you recognize the fear that is embedded in that? The pressure. Can you see that thereby we are dependent on the constant, uninterrupted functioning of every part of the body. Think to yourself, what would you do when that part stops functioning, when there is intermittent functioning or reduced functioning or none. So how was that for people? I did mine on the uh, small intestine because that's the one I find the most disgusting, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to kind of tap into this deep sense of like panic at it stopped functioning and like this imagining of all the suffering that's going to lead to my death and starving to death and going away scared and freaking out. All because of this 33-foot-long tube 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of fear. <clears throat> we don't know. I've noticed how much I'm uh, denying that I'm afraid. And somehow it's like, you know, it will be fine. But then I realized how much I panic if something happens with my toe. So now... <laughs> <laughs> so it's not really imbalanced, apparently. Yes, this is exactly. And can you see that thereby we are dependent on the constant, uninterrupted functioning of every part of this body. It's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> I first started with the skin, but then when you said that it stopped functioning, I kind of couldn't imagine that so I shifted over to the heart and that immediately brought up yeah a lot of fear and just that yeah just that there's no control just I mean it's such a helpless feeling of there's no control um but fortunately my mind then went to like well the one thing is to take refuge so <laughs> that's the only thing to do yay <laughs> that's the conclusion <laughs> practice the dharma <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it kind of feels like it has to work perfectly or almost perfectly also. If something little tiny thing goes wrong, either discomfort, extreme pain, or death, everything has to work so... There's all these pieces, millions of parts going around. They all have to work intricately together almost perfectly. Yeah, this is Dukkha. So I think at the beginning, I did the meditation. I didn't rely on uh, the, 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 the meditation that you share. But then when I read um, the Satipatthana Sutra, it said we need to contemplate the body internally. We need to contemplate the body externally and also contemplate inter the body internally and externally. Then, of course, first I was like meditating on the, just the how uh, the internal organs function. And then I was thinking, even all the uh, internal organ function properly, but then I still need to rely on the four external uh, material elements. For example, uh, if my bladder would function very well, but I don't have water, I still die. So, or if uh, whatever my lung or whatever work properly, but I have no oxygen, then I still die. So, so for our, our body to survive, we need external and internal. That's why the boot. So when you read at the, the, uh, the, and also about the arising and passing away factor of the body, I say, if we do, don't do one, uh, the, 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 that two things, then I think it's incomplete. That's why it's very helpful to do that. Thank you. Yeah, that's really helpful. This is a dependent arising, not just internally, but externally and their relationship to one another. Yeah. I was meditating on the brain and it's like the remote control of the body. So if that is gone, it's gone. Yeah. So I start. Yeah, so that was mm -hmm. the meditation. 
Yeah. It's kind of scary. <laughs> um, and you can see how our attachment to the body is so related to our anger when it's either in pain from an internal condition or harmed from an external one, that these are so linked together that as soon as there's attachment, there will be anger when something happens and something doesn't work. Yeah. I, I picked the kidneys and my first thought was, oh, we have dialysis. And, but, but, but here's, it was interesting in mentioning, you know, the anger coming up is that I, I contemplated how irritating that would be, how inconvenient that would be. So maybe it's not necessarily the fear, but still very much that, that attachment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a thought came to mind that myself and others have had, you know, the situation in the past few months of, you know, having different uh, dental work done. So again, okay, the teeth fail, but look, we have technology to fix it. But it's certainly inconvenient and irritating and problematic. And it would have been nice had our teeth just kept working as they were originally. Mm. So, so even at that intermediate step of my mind kind of saying, yes, but there's still that anger arising. There's still that downside of the attachment. Yeah, because there's actually another part of that meditation where she talks about you can get replacements for these parts. Yes, you can get replacements for these parts, some of them, but it doesn't always work well. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could get um, kidney transplants don't always go well. Um, yeah, and there are many examples of that, that even though we can get it fixed, we can get it repaired, replaced. It's not always satisfactory. I focus on the bones and um, was thinking of like uh, bone marrow um, cancer or other blood cancers and the, to the need to go through chemotherapy and how would I handle that pain or bone marrow transplant knowing how painful that is and how would I work through that and that... Um, the fear of pain arising, like extreme pain. Um, and then the thought that, that like there has to, I want to develop a mind that can embrace the pain and work with pain so that, because um, it's going to come in some level, even if it's not that extreme, but to be able to know that this body necessarily brings about some level of pain that's in my future to some degree, how can I work with it um, more than I can now? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about there, there will be pain in my future. Yeah, this body will bring pain. Um, that's re really uncomfortable to think about. But it, it's not like I can get out of this life without pain. I don't think, yeah. It's not with that, but I, um, I was thinking, it reminded me of Lama um, Rinpoche when he had a stroke and he was in the hospital and when he woke up, he was, uh, you know, um, I don't know which side, does not work anymore. And then he was taking his hand and it dropped and he laughed and he laughed and he laughed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's an example of someone who is... <laughs> 
has eliminated or has worked with this extensively and knows how to handle it. Yeah, this is what happens when you transform the mind. Then what happens to the body doesn't affect the mind. So another um, antidote to attachment to the body, this is the fourth um, of the distortions. So the body is selfless. So we've looked at the body being impermanent, the body is unsatisfactory, the body is impure, and now the body is selfless. And in one of the motivations um, for one of the teachings, Venerable said, or asked, what makes this body yours? Who is the one that owns this body? What is the relationship between the owner and the owned? And in chapter 5, verse 60, Shantideva asks, Why, O mind, do you protect this body, taking it to be your own? You and it are each a separate entity. However, can it be of use to you? So when Venerable was talking about this, she said, yeah, what, what makes it mine? Who is the person who owns it? Because sometimes we feel that the body is I, I'm sick, I'm injured. And sometimes we think the body is separate from the I, or the, the body is like a possession. Yeah, my body. And she asked the question, how is this body useful for the purpose of becoming a Buddha? And so I thought to spend the rest of the time looking at some other perspectives on the body, um, because I was thinking that, you know, you could meditate a lot on the foulness of the body, <laughs> the unattractive nature, you know, the unsatisfactoriness, and get kind of depressed. <laughs> um, so how can we balance the mind? Um, and Shantideva's good at that as well. Um, and even in her, in the commentary for verse 44, um, she mentioned, as she was saying, like, what are you saying? This body is not an abscess. Um, this is the basis of my precious human life. And she said that there are many perspectives to take to viewing the body. And we really have to know which perspective to use at which part of our practice. And so there's several verses in the text that give um, other perspectives in terms of how to view the body. And one is that this body is rare and precious. It is the basis for our precious human life, as Venable Lamsell described in her BBC, that we need to use this body uh, to accomplish our spiritual goals. And this comes up in chapter four, um, and I'll read uh, three verses because they, they really um, talk about the body in terms of the initial scope practitioner, in terms of precious human life, um, impermanence, and even thinking about karma. So it says, the appearance of the Buddhas in the world True faith in the attainment of a human form, an aptitude for good, all these are rare. When will they come to me again? Today, indeed, I'm hale and well. I have enough to eat, and I am not in danger. But this life is fleeting, unreliable, 
my body is like something briefly lent. And yet the way I act is such that I shall not regain a human life. And losing this, my precious human form, my evils will be many, virtues none. So Venerable was saying that these uh, conditions, these are the four Mahayana wheels of the appearance of a Buddha in the world, true faith, a human form, and an aptitude for good. And so not only does a precious human life enable us to practice the Dharma, but these specifically enable us to um, meet and practice the Mahayana. And we see that without this body, um, we couldn't engage in virtue. Um, and without the brain, um, because it is the support, even though um, it is separate from the mind, but it is the support for our human intelligence. So we can look at the animals, the insects. They can't do what we're doing. They don't have the body to support what we're doing. So in this commentary it says, When one obtains a precious human existence, endowed with freedoms and advantages, one is fortunate in having the capacity to do good with one's body, speech, and mind. So we have the capacity. doesn't mean we take advantage of it, but we have the ability if we choose to. And so another perspective on the body is that it is valuable if used properly. So in chapter 5, verse 66, the last two lines, the value of this human form lies only in the use you make of it. So Venerable says, it is only useful to practice virtue. There is no other purpose for this human body than for practicing virtue. It is just a vehicle for practice. It's difficult to practice generosity without a body. It's difficult to do prostrations without a body. So there's a verse, um, two lines in this commentary that says, the mind is like the king omnipotent. The body is his servant, both in good or ill. And in verse 70 of chapter 5, Shantideva continues and says, Regard your body as a vessel, a simple boat for going here and there. Make of it a thing that answers every wish to bring about the benefits of beings. So Venerable says, we should conceive of our body as a vehicle. I use it to create merit, a mere support for coming and going. If I really want to benefit others, I need to transform it. And here she talked about the practice of Tonglen, the taking and giving meditation, where we're imagining taking in the suffering of others and giving them all of our virtue and everything that would benefit them. And so we imagine that we have a wish-fulfilling body, a body of a Buddha, and we can give them everything that they desire. And she says, a wish-fulfilling body doesn't complain. I know mine does. So we start by imagining transforming. So we practice the path until we can actually attain the bodies of a Buddha. 
There's two other quotes in here I'd like to share in this regard. Let us regard this body as a simple support, a boat for making the journey to liberation and omniscience, and for coming to the rescue of beings. And another quote says, Misused, this body is a stone for sinking in samsara's depths. Well used, this body is a boat that sails to liberation. This body is the slave of evil or of good. So we know that. We can create a lot of non-virtue with our body, um, but we can also do a lot of good. But how are we going to do all this good? We have to monitor it <laughs> constantly. <laughs> so the end of chapter 5, which was all about um, introspective awareness, Shantideva says, Examining again and yet again the state and actions of your body and mind, this alone defines in brief the maintenance of watchful introspection. And the commentary says, the practice of vigilant introspection can be briefly defined as the examination performed repeatedly and not only once, made to discover whether one's actions in thought, word, and deed are positive, negative, or neutral, combined with the alert and enthusiastic implementation of the principle of adopting and rejecting. So we have this precious human life. Um, our body can be used with virtue you know, in the pursuit of virtue. But the only way it can do that is if we monitor what we're doing. We need to pay attention. So Venerable says, what am I doing? Is it something virtuous? Is it something beneficial? Or am I out on a limb somewhere with a chipmunk? <laughs> Translation, are we in la-la land? Are we... Um, going on automatic? Are we driven by afflictions? Are we forgetting our values and precepts? Right? So I catch myself here, you know, like racing across the room trying to get something or, um, yeah, there's so many ways that we can use our body that are not considerate of others. Does anybody have any example? <laughs> there's countless. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, I thought here to share a quote um, from Shantideva's other text, um, his training anthology. And this is about um, being mindful at all times. And I just, I don't know, the way it's worded is so helpful. Um, because I can really see it in my own experience. So it says, There are twelve forms of mindfulness for giving up fruitless activities. They are mindfulness of respecting the evolution of actions and protecting your state of obedience to, to the instructions of the Tathagata, so karma. The mindfulness of resting in the essential stillness of the entire body the mindfulness of the stable commitment in everything you do 
to take it as your principal goal in life to remain motionless with very stable mindfulness, not using your limbs except for the benefit of sentient beings. The mindfulness of guarding your body, as with the fear that beginners feel, so as to be respectful at festivals and so on. The mindfulness that watches when you move among the four bodily postures. The mindfulness that from time to time looks at the correctness of your physical posture, so as to prevent any disturbance in physical posture. The mindfulness that stops contortions of the hand, feet, head, or mouth, which can be extremely ugly, due to the influence of excessive volatility, excitement, partiality, and so on. While you are speaking, the mindfulness of listening, and speaking only loud enough so that others can understand, and no more loudly than that. The mindfulness of maintaining the clarity of your own mind when meeting and conversing with untrained people, sensing the danger of creating doubt in others, the mindfulness of always keeping the rutting elephant of the mind tied to the pillar of resting meditation. The mindfulness of observing from moment to moment what is happening in your mind. The mindfulness of focusing on staying mindful of the teachings and not slipping away from them when you are among crowds of regular people. Through these forms of mindfulness, you can actually give up fruitless activities. It's pretty difficult to do. <laughs> I especially like the one about remaining motionless, not using your limbs except for the benefit of sentient beings. That is so beautiful and so not what I do. So the last two perspectives on the body that I'd like to um, share are the body as an offering both to holy beings and to sentient beings. And so chapter two is about um, confession primarily, but the whole first section is about um, making offerings um, as a way to purify or as a way to create merit. Um, as, and it's really part of an extended seven-limb prayer in this text. And so there's um, two verses about offering the body. So this is in the section on material offerings. So offerings of one's possessions, things owned. Uh, so that are things owned, offerings of things unowned, and offering of one's body. So it says, Enlightened ones and all your bodhisattva heirs, I offer you my body throughout all my lives, Supreme Courageous One, accept me totally, for with devotion I will be your slave. For if you will accept me, I will be undaunted by samsara and will act for being's sake. I'll leave behind the evils of my past and ever after turn my face from them. So one thing that I've been doing, trying to do, um, is reflecting on these verses um, during our evening chants. So if anyone's been here to the Abbey, um, Tuesday and Saturday evenings we do Chinese chanting. 
And there's the first chant that we do, um, the translation of it is homage to the fundamental teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. And there's a section, well, well, we kind of alternate between one half of the room bowing down and we do a Chinese style bow and we're kind of our, our heads on the floor and our palms up. Um, and I find it so helpful to reflect on this verse um, while in that position. Because it's like, it, it feels like we're, you know, we're offering our bodies and we imagine all the holy beings in the space in front. And so it's just been, yeah, really beneficial um, to do this. So Venerable, when she um, was giving commentary on this verse, said that we're really, what this verse is really saying is that we're committing ourselves to the bodhisattva path until Buddhahood. So we are offering not just this body, we are offering bodies until Buddhahood and including Buddha um, for sentient beings. So it's like mind boggling. Um, and she said, what we are saying here is that we are committing ourselves to serve the Dharma and to serve the purposes of the three jewels. If you were someone's servant, you would see their goals as important and want to serve them. So what are the goals of the three jewels? To benefit sentient beings temporarily and ultimately by teaching the Dharma. If I serve the three jewels, then I would be considered for doing these things. We are taking on their goals, their reason for being. And she, at this point, talked about how she has some resistance to um, practices that talk about devotion in this way, that they can seem like, you know, being put on from outside. But she was saying that this is a completely voluntary process. So there's nothing coming from the sides of the objects we respect. And it's completely coming from our side. And so she says that Shantideva is walking us through how he practices and I want to learn from them and hold them in high regard. Let them instruct me and train me. It becomes something that I want to do and feel privileged to do. We think of offering our body alone, or we can also think about offering our whole life. I'm dedicating my life to be of greatest, servant, greatest service to sentient beings and increasing my ability to do that. So I think it's, yeah, so incredibly beautiful to think that we can devote our physical energy towards the goals of the three jewels. And Venerable, um, in this regard, spoke about her um, amazing efforts in um, helping His Holiness with the books, um, the Library of Wisdom and Compassion. And that's something that she sees as yeah, really offering herself to the holy beings. And so I know, I mean, at the Abbey, we do offering service, right? Every day, um, at least in some way, we're offering our physical energy to others. So I thought to ask, how do you use your physical energy to serve the Dharma and your teachers? I know you do. <laughs> yeah. This may seem strange, but I remember um, 
one of the first times I went to a monastic gathering early on, it was at a beautiful temple where they had this beautiful gate that was, had been very well painted at one time. But the whole grounds there were kind of ill-kept because the master had passed away and I don't think they had enough people to take care of things. And so actually I made a kind of internal decision at that point that I didn't want that to happen here. And I still feel that way. Like I don't want this place ever to get run down, even just physically, because um, it just, we need a home that is safe for everyone. But also that gate was so beautiful and it was sad to see it so run down. It was really a beautiful, beautiful piece of art, mm. but it wasn't able to be maintained. So I, I feel like even, you know, the mundane things that we do, um, well, like this, this, you know, it's easier with artwork, like this beautiful window that we have above you. I mean, it took that person three years to make that. So everyone's energy that goes into everything that happens here, I feel like we have a responsibility. Yeah, thank you. And thank you to all the seniors, I'm looking at Venerable Sampin, for uh, yeah, reminding us that cleanliness and orderliness is very important for the mind and, yeah, for people coming here to, to straighten up our shoes. And <laughs> a big part of our training here is being a team player. So what I most, um, I'm so happy about is that we can offer people, anyone in the world who wants to come here, to come. And so they can come here to do a retreat and offering a retreat for people takes every single member of the community living here to prepare for that. And it, it starts weeks in advance. And uh, it's really a moment when people start arriving that I feel like we're really all on the same page, that uh, we're making, you know, Venable's vision come to life, really. You know, this place is for the world, and we're offering the Dharma. Yeah. Yeah, and we can really rejoice at that. So when I was a baby nun, I didn't, I thought that like if I, I eat them more, then I have more energy, but, uh, it's partially correct. Physical and uh, mental energy come from feet. It's one of the five spiritual faculties and five spiritual powers. So when you, the, the feet support the arising of energy, for our continuous monastic training and our monastic life. So when we uh, practice sincerely and wholeheartedly, then we experience the benefit from our practice and it increases faith as the result. It boosts up our energy naturally. And from that, we can support Dharma, we can do a lot of things to benefit all beings. So it's a wonderful. So when we look at that, and from that energy, it, 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 it supports the mindfulness practice. And with mindfulness and that energy, mindfulness monitor our energy and develop, help us develop concentration and wisdom. So that is so powerful when we look at it that way. 
And I'm very grateful that the Abbey uh, is doing the for my for foundation of mindfulness this uh, uh, winter. And I hope that we're going to choose to do that every year, not just one year. And not just the winter retreat, but all year round. So I hope I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. It's so beautiful and very, very, very beneficial. Thank you. Yeah, there's this, um, yeah, when we see something working and we see that um, and we're rejoicing in what we're doing, yeah, we have more energy and we have faith in the teachings and we want to serve them. You know, any time that we have this interest, it brings more energy. Um, and I find personally that when I'm afflicted, I have very little energy. <laughs> the afflictions are a zap. Yeah, especially anger. So the last perspective that I'd like to share is the body as an offering to sentient beings. So Shantideva in chapter 3, verse 11 says, My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merit gained and to be gained, I give them all and do not count the cost to bring about the benefit of beings. So her commentary to this, Venerable Children, said that we give our body possessions and virtue, such as in Tonglin. So again, imagining them becoming whatever sentient beings need. And she said that without any sense of loss is a very crucial phrase. Because if, we, if we're like holding on to a little bit, then we can't fully give. We can't completely give. Part of our mind is tight. But as Shantideva reminds us, Venable Chodron reminds us, at death we have to give everything up anyway. So we might as well give it up earlier and make it useful for people instead of just having your family fight over your possessions and your, you know, based on your will. Yeah, so much better to just give it away now. So we start small. Um, so we do not give our body to the cougar in the forest. Um, but we, you know, we can do little things. Um, and what Venerable Chodron said was, it's about giving up self-centeredness. It's giving up the fear and giving up attachment. This is what we're really doing. Um, in this commentary, the Nectar of Manjushri's speech, uh, it makes quite a big deal about this verse. Um, I won't read all of it, but just a few lines. Um, it says that this is mind training, this severing attachment to the body. And it's the essential pith instruction that drives out ego clinging. Cultivate a generous frame of mind by repeatedly declaring to give away everything. And it, it says in this commentary that, yeah, we, it's not saying, like Venerable Children says and others say, it's not saying that we give up everything now. We don't give up our body. We don't give up things that we actually need um, because we're not ready to do that. Our altruistic intention's not pure, but that we can train to do that. We can imagine doing that. 
So one of the meditations we're doing in the um, retreat is about giving away our body in terms of the four elements. So we can do that. Um, we can imagine that we can offer it as food to the vultures and the fox, but don't do that. <laughs> um, so it's really, it's really this idea of really keep expanding, expanding, expanding the mind. Um, and eventually, one day, it will be as easy as giving a carrot to one hand to another to actually offer our body and to offer everything and to offer our virtue. So I'd like to end with a little bit of a meditation, but does anyone have any comments before we do that? Or questions, but I'll give the questions to Geshe-la. <laughs> this may be a Geshe-la question. Okay. Um, Good. <laughs> uh, do hell beings and hungry ghosts experience sexual desire? It, you specified hell beings and hungry ghosts. So they are so preoccupied with their sufferings, particularly that of the hell beings. Mostly they will be uh, kind of consumed in their hatred and anger over themselves, over others, over the suffering, and then the suffering will be too intense and too uh, uh, unrelenting, no matter what, it will keep coming back. So there, I haven't come across any references to a family, a family in the hell room. <laughs> <laughs> so that, 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 that explains that <laughs> you just born there. You can't say, oh, you gave me birth here. <laughs> so that doesn't seem like. And I'm, right now I'm not thinking philosophically or textually, just uh, off my head. Uh, but with regard to hungry ghosts, yeah, there are references to families. Yeah, so uh, our Prita, Prita, uh, Offering, not that we mentioned that in by name, but in some offerings, if we want, we could include the names of Haritha and others. In Tibetan, we do that, and uh, what do you call dedicate bread, blessed or consecrated or permitted blessed, not permitted blessed to them, uh, and the story goes that it had a family. It's a mother, uh, a family of several children, and to feed them, because they're always, again, suffering out of uh, hunger, and what they have is very meager, and they don't feel entitled to excess things. Uh, so, yeah, they come across so much uh, challenges in, in accessing if if uh, once in a while they do come across something eatable, but there are so much obstacles, so that's how they have difficulty feeding this this particular Brita mother had difficulty feeding her many children, and thus was resorting to harming human children, and that's what then went to the Buddha. So as a way of 
changing her her habits as well as making her feel how terrible that is uh, on herself. Uh, how terrible it is that she's doing on others, make her feel that herself. Buddha hit one of the children in the in the arms ball. Arms ball is unreachable to everything. <laughs> However small it may be, <laughs> it is an arms ball. Wow. And so she was searching, 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 eventually asked the Buddha, did you see? <laughs> it's in here. <laughs> so then the whole story. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, long story short, business in the family, but uh, the helpings, no. No celebrations, no. <laughs> uh, no, what do you call that? Matchmaking. <laughs> All of that. So let's just do a little bit of digestion meditation. So what is this body that we've taken under the control of karma and afflictions? It is a basis for our spiritual growth. especially when we cultivate bodhicitta. It is rare and precious when we consider our precious human rebirth. It is something to be seen realistically as being in permanent unsatisfactory, impure, and selfless. It is something to be used wisely by practicing virtue and monitoring our behavior. And finally, when we do this, it becomes an offering to both holy beings and sentient beings. And so to go back to the verses we looked at today, when we conceive our body realistically, then when we experience pain, since we know that pain is part of having a body, Anger will not arise. Venerable said, understand what the body is and aspire to have a wish-fulfilling body by transforming your mind. So take from this sharing whatever is helpful for your practice. 
and continue striving to eliminate attachment to the body while remaining balanced and optimistic, recognizing our amazing potential. <laughs> 